This is Past Perfect, CU Medieval Radio's program on medieval and early modern history and culture, in association with Civil Radio FM 98. Hello there, I'm Christopher Melke, and you're listening to Past Perfect. This is CEU Medieval Radio's show on medieval and early modern history and culture in association with Civil Radio FM 98. I'm joined today by um, Christian Nikolai Gashbar, who is a lecturer at the Department of Medieval Studies at Central European University. He's the um, Latin teacher as part of the Source Language Teaching Group, and he's also a senior fellow at the Center for Eastern Mediterranean Studies. So, Dr. Gashbar, thank you very much for uh, joining us today. Uh, thank you very much for inviting me. It feels great to be here tonight. Ah, fantastic. Uh, in, in my interactions with you in the department, you're sort of um, the Latin factotum of the uh, medieval studies department, a teacher, a philologist. So you, you wear a lot of hats um, from, from what I've seen. And um, one of the things that I'd like to ask you, um, just very basic, one of the things that I'm still not clear on um, after all these many, many years. Um, when you say that you are trained as a classical philologist, uh, what exactly does this mean? Well, um, let me start with the Latin factotum, which you mentioned, mm -hmm. uh, me being that at the department. Uh, this is a reflection of the sad fact that we Latinists and classical philologists are a rare endangered breed okay. <laughs> and hopefully one that uh, will survive for at least a couple of decades, <laughs> if, uh, if not more. Um, I was trained as a classical philologist in Romania in the early 90s in the strictest tradition of classical philology mm -hmm. that is a type of um, knowledge that limits itself in time and in space to a couple of hundreds of years in Rome and uh -huh. in Greece. And it deals with the language and the culture of these uh, spaces, almost ignoring what came after them. Mm -hmm. Although nowadays the situation has changed a lot and people are more open ever since the discovery of uh, late antiquity as a legitimate territory for uh -huh. scientific investigation. But my training is uh, was rather old-fashioned in this way. I was trained to become a classical philologist. That is somebody who reads text in Latin and in Greek and does not go beyond the mid-third century, let's say. I see. So when um, you talk about the sort of older tradition, that's the very, um, my imagine, the sort of golden age where you have Cicero or Seneca or the very, um, the fine orators and speech givers of this period. Is that right? Yes. What they used to call the aurea latinitas, the golden Latinity, the golden age of, uh, of Latin, and which in itself reflects the um, conservative nature of this kind of vision, which made its own an ancient conception about how the ages of mankind change. Mm -hmm. They start in the golden age, which is followed by a continuous decline that leads humanity through the silver age, then the um, bronze age, the iron age, mm -hmm. and God knows what comes after that. <laughs> <laughs> plastic age we're in now, I guess. Yes. It's just interesting. I mean, th this period for me is, I think, really fascinating because it's something that has, has such a resonance where I talk to, you know, my grandmother who learned uh, Latin back in Utah and um, fellow students from other places learning Latin. And one of the first things that they say is, Gaul is divided into three parts. 
<laughs> in Latin, of course. I can't remember it off the top of my head. So. Yes, yeah, it's, it's the beginning of uh, O Caesar's commentary de bello gallico. <laughs> right, right. The relationship between the um, this sort of period of antiquity and the Middle Ages is something that I find is very fascinating. You've had a few guests here talk about, you know, this sort of very, very long um, period of history where there's a lot of interaction and a lot of attempts to recall this uh, earlier sort of um, history with varying degrees of success, I would say. You mentioned this decline mm -hmm. uh, um, that is perceived as, um, you know, gold to silver to bronze. Is is that a modern construction, or is it something that people living in the sort of late antique, early medieval period were aware of or cognizant of? Uh, well, it, it's an ancient construct, an ancient ideological construct, um, one that for many centuries was taken over by modern scholarship mm -hmm. and perpetuated in, in that way. Uh, one of the first things which I learned when I came to Budapest to study at the Medieval Studies Department in 1997 mm -hmm. uh, was that the really exciting things started exactly at the point where I had been told that everything entered the Iron Age and there was nothing important to be found there but decline. Uh -huh. uh, one of the most exciting developments of the last decades was exactly the reaction in terms of scholarship against this paradigm of, uh, of decline. And nowadays, uh, using the term declines is no longer fashionable. We all speak of the change and transformation mm -hmm. of the Roman world, for instance. Although recently, there's been a backlash against this as well, and people started speaking again about decline. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Um, but uh, as I said, one of the things which I learned here in Budapest at the Department of Medieval Studies is that there was a lot after what I had been taught uh, that was the end of Western civilization, uh, to say like this. Mm -hmm. And perhaps the most interesting thing, uh, the most uh, valid argument for those who claim that the really interesting thing started happening after the fall of the Roman Empire and the decline of the classical world, is that many of the changes which resulted in situations with which we are still trying to cope today originate exactly in late antiquity and in the early Middle Ages where some of the choices with which we still have to live today uh, were made by people who lived in those um, days and who had uh, some sort of power and some sort of influence. And that is really something we can connect to mm -hmm. in terms of learning history as the mistress of life and the yes. art of living today. That's perhaps studying late antiquity and the early Middle Ages is something that helps us understand mm, many of the things uh, with which we still have to live today and which we still have to sort out nowadays. Sure. And I think that this period of decline with the necessary quotation marks is, is a really fascinating because a lot of the interviewers have mentioned the past as the fact that it's not like everyone woke up one day and said, oh, we are now in a period of decline or, oh, yes. this is this is now the early Middle Ages yes. or, oh, this is now the Renaissance. Yes. Hooray for us. Yes. And so that for me, with teaching the um, introduction to the Middle Ages class, um, one of the things that we kept talking about was how where and when survival happens, how, you know, in, in this period of supposed decline, you still have, um, um, again, with, with Latin, there's a lot of epigraphic evidence. It's not as much as it was in the preceding centuries, but you still have, you know, 
I, citizen so-and-so, because I'm such an awesome dude, decide to donate, <laughs> you know, a nice gymnasium for a bunch of naked people to exercise because right. I'm awesome. Well, this kind of dedication that you're talking about stops very early, but it's true that you can see either decline mm -hmm. or um, change and exciting transformation depending very much on the lenses you put on when you look at things. Okay. And this is something that characterizes studies uh, into late antiquity nowadays. Because if you have read a lot of Peter Brown and mm -hmm. were fascinated by his books, as very few people um, chose not to be uh, or couldn't be, you discover that in the eastern part of the Roman Empire, in the centuries that followed the fall of Rome, uh, there still is a very exciting, very effervescent cultural and spiritual development. Mm -hmm. And he chose to focus on this rather than what happened in the western part of the empire with the barbarian invasions, with the collapse of the imperial authority. Mm -hmm. And of course, having made this choice, the world of late antiquity that he described, focus on the eastern part of the Roman Empire, mm -hmm. is not one of decay and decline, but one of very exciting and very innovative change and transformation. The recent reaction to this, led by some people such as uh, archaeologists and uh, Marxist historians, mm -hmm. uh, and here I could mention Brian Ward Perkins uh -huh. and um, others, emphasize the fact that if you choose not to look at the spiritual development and at the spiritual universe in which late antique people, some of them chose to live, but look at very down-to-earth things mm -hmm. such as uh, plumbing systems, the manufacture of earthware that was used for domestic purposes, mm -hmm. the height and the size of domestic bovines, and the public sewage systems. Yeah, uh -huh. And if you look at what happened to these factors in Western Europe, you can clearly see that everything went to hell after the collapse of the imperial authority which is also valid for what happened to the um, educational system, which until then had been based in cities, which right, would right. finance public schools through local councils and all that. So it depends very yeah. much on where you look uh, at it, Definitely. from which direction you look at it. And, and from my own experience, archaeological evidence is something that how to interpret that is... You have to be really, really careful cherry-picking your data because one of the, um, in terms of infrastructure, I can definitely see the point that, you know, toilets aren't working as well as they used to. But um, at the same time... If they exist. If they exist. <laughs> <laughs> um, at the same time, though, um, there's also a lot of other interesting trends that show continuity of certain things as sure. compared to others. I mean, um, Michael McCormick, for instance, has really rewritten the economic history of the Mediterranean from the years 500 to 700, where he shows that it was changing, but it, that it wasn't necessarily collapsing like a souffle. Sure. That systems were changing, that, you know, you don't have the sort of big scale, nice, perfect, pretty white marble buildings, but you do have people hanging out and setting up stalls on the side of a city wall or making use of available space on a smaller scale, but things are still being uh, used and um, reused, I would even say. Of course, much of this uh, modern perspective, whether it's one of uh, development, creative development, or one of decline and mm -hmm. fall, is influenced very much by uh, the voices, the few voices of those uh, 
chosen individuals whose views produced in late antiquity on their own age have survived the centuries. And these, this is a very selective choice of such, uh, such views because what we hear are the voices of male educated elite mm -hmm. which are not always very much representative of the general views of people so we cannot really tell whether anybody woke up in the <laughs> day after Rome fall and said oh my god I've entered the period of decline yes, yes. Um, what we hear are disputes between educated uh, males in positions of power who have their own ideologies and their own ideological axe to grind. Mm -hmm. So they might choose to uh, say that uh, there you see Rome fall because you forbade our sacrifices. Mm -hmm. Or Augustine might come and say, no, 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 Rome has fallen before. Yes. Look at all the defeats of the Roman state throughout history. And then you were still performing your sacrifices. Right. And then it becomes a matter of um, whose opinion do you choose? Whose opinion do you emphasize? And there, there's also been a lot of recent talk about sort of this this notion of the Justinian revival that with Emperor Justinian reconquering the whole of the Mediterranean or wanting to and then how everything seems to be great again and then it falls to crap afterwards. And that's a view that um, I think with within the past generation or two of scholarship has undergone some scrutiny. On that note, we'll take a very short break. Um, uh, please enjoy the music. We'll be back momentarily. Welcome back. Uh, this is Past Perfect, a CU Medieval Radio show, and um, I'm Christopher Melke, and joining us today is uh, Dr. Christian Gaspar. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for the invitation. So, let's talk sex. I, I bring this up because one of, uh, one of the courses that you've uh, taught in the past is a course on uh, ancient sexuality. Taking a look at the syllabus, it's uh, quite a long um, period of study. So, Trying to think how to how to ease into a conversation about ancient sex. Is there anything they really did differently than we do nowadays? Starting with something. Basic. Maybe mm, the difference is not in what they did, mm -hmm. which is pretty much the same thing that we are still doing today. And of it's, course, it's difficult to come up with new things when your uh, tools are limited and they <laughs> come in a very limited choice. It's the way they thought about what they were doing ah, I see. and especially the way in which they talked about it either in written texts which have survived mm -hmm. or in visual depictions which have also survived sure. so it's not so much the practices which differ mm -hmm. but rather their conceptualization and the way these concepts were communicated so uh -huh. the way of talking about this and this is what my course was about. It was divided into three segments. Uh, the first, the shortest one, which dealt with practices. Uh -huh. And for that, there's plenty of illustrative material. And I think my students enjoyed the most that <laughs> particular part. Um, but then came the, the other two parts, the more serious ones, the uh -huh. ones on uh, the intellectual conceptualization of sex and sexuality and gender mm -hmm. uh, in its relation with uh, sexuality. And then, of course, the way people talked about it and the way people didn't talk about it because this changes in time. Mm. Certain, certain topics become taboo okay. in certain milieus and some of those taboos we have in inherited and kept for centuries. I come from the U.S., so I certainly <laughs> can, can sympathize with the, 
very closed dialogue on um, anything yes. related to sexual, especially sexual practice. But so what sort of things, um, sorry to interrupt, but what sort of things were considered taboo then? Well, uh, let's start with the, with the U.S. because you mentioned it. One of the examples which I gave to my students uh -huh. was uh, that of a country where an accidentally disclosed nipple <laughs> on stage yes. during a public event can cause a national uproar. Oh, yes. Not so much perhaps in the, m in the minds of the individuals, but in the public discourse. Yeah, well, I mean, you're there to watch football, not to watch accidental <laughs> nipple slips. <laughs> but that was an accidental slip. Of course, of course, yeah. So um, the very fact that the sight of a small portion of the naked female body, mm -hmm. one that is normally associated uh, in the minds of many people with sexual activity, could cause such a scandal, tells us a lot about how much the naked body, and especially the female body, how much of a taboo this became in the public discourse, sure, uh -huh. and the fact of it being displayed in public. Mm -hmm. And this is something that starts in late antiquity. This is something that was the idea behind my course. We were looking exactly at the changes that happened in that period and which left very enduring consequences, some of which are still with us today. That's the period where uh, certain decisions were made which influenced the way people, men, looked like for many centuries? Uh, did they wear beards? Mm -hmm. Why? In what situations in their lives? Mm -hmm. Was the naked human body something you should display yeah. openly in public? Would that attract any sort of moral censor? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, this all has to do with the advent of a series of very ascetically mind minded movements in late antiquity. And I'm not referring simply to Christianity and especially of its, uh, to its ascetic branch, right. but rather um, also to uh, philosophical schools, which tended to devalue the body mm -hmm. and especially the display of the naked body and link it to ideas of sin and of punishment. And this is one of the things which figures prominently in the late antique discourse on sexualities. I tend to use the plural. Okay. <laughs> I tend to use the plural because there were different ways of thinking about mm -hmm. sexuality depending on who represented these views. Well, and, and, and representation of the human body, especially in the naked form, is something that, I mean, is really ongoing. I mean, remembering what I've learned about um, art history in the Hellenistic period, the initially, you know, male nudes were um, fine and fair game, and of course, and female nudes were really not something that you see until around, like, 400, 500, before the Common Era, before Christ. And nowadays, what do you think? If you think of Aphrodite or Venus, you know, fixing her hair, yeah. she's posing, she's got the right yes. body parts in the right place. The very first known depiction of a naked Aphrodite in 
a very public context. She's in the middle of bathing and she's leaning over and the way it's presented is that it's it's presented that you are catching her and she's and and she's just noticed that you're looking at her. So it's very voyeuristic and almost it, it it's an almost reciprocal relationship that you have where on one hand, you know, you have a very nice looking young woman without any clothes on, but on the other hand you're looking at it and it's it's supposed to make you feel a little bit uncomfortable because she's um it's a very sort of unequal relationship between the viewer and uh who you're viewing there's that and then there's also i have to make a comment on the nipple thing for me because um <laughs> when i was when i was in in poland uh, the summer with the, visiting there with a friend we saw this one um lactating virgin mary right the only thing that was really weird about it was the fact that it looked like her um, breast was on her collarbone <laughs> rather than on part of her chest. So it was a very odd picture for that reason. But My, maybe the artist didn't go to the best schools. <laughs> per- perhaps it was um, it was a very odd um, anatomical uh, um, position. But um, I remember my friend was sort of curious that why is the Virgin Mary there with certain body parts flapping in the breeze? Right. Well, one of the things which we talked about a lot uh, during the course, uh, partly as a discussion stimulated by the questions of the of the students, and partly as the result of the readings which I uh, which I presented to them, was the inscribing of the body, the inscription of the body, the way religious discourse and philosophical discourse, ideological discourses take hold of the body, mm-hmm. of the human body, and then refashion it in a way in which it would fit their own ideological agendas. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And one of the things which I tried to explain to the students uh, was that contrary to popular perceptions, it was not Christianity that brought into an openly tolerant, carefree, (laughs) idyllic society, ancient society, many of these restrictions which were placed upon the body its physiological manifestations, its public display, but it was rather something that was a cooperative effort I see. between male elites of various ideological persuasions, of various religious or philosophical denominations, uh-huh. which led to what uh, one scholar of late antiquity called a closing of horizons. Uh, and it's due to the fact that these male elites, ascetically minded male elites, got into positions of power and monopolized the public discourse and were in a position to redefine what an intellectual is, for instance, in terms of somebody who does not give in to any sort of physical impulse, Uh somebody who is able to dominate himself and then herself. Mm -hmm. We are talking about the emergence of female monasticism, which is defined in pretty much the same same terms. And that is because they were able to define these new leaders of society in terms that included complete mastery over the exercise and display of some physiological functions Mm -hmm. and especially of the naked body and of its manifestations in sexual contexts. And this came from all sides. Mm -hmm. If you look at the way Mani and his disciples, um, the Manichaeans, Manichaeans. looked upon the body as this prison from which the particles of divine light should be helped to 
escape yeah. and return back. If you look at the beginning of the life of Plotinus, written by one of his disciples, Porphyry, which starts with the words, Plotinus, the philosopher living in our times, was ashamed that he had to live in a body, so much so that he forbade any artistic representation of this transient body yeah. to be made, you realize that these conceptions are not that different from the conceptions of the monastic fathers of Egypt, for instance, okay. for whom the body became a burden one had to escape eventually. There's a very nice anecdote from the Apophthegmata Patrum, which uh, speaks about the mother of one of these uh, ascetic fathers visiting him, and they had to cross the river Nile, and he had to get into contact with her body, the clothed body, not the naked body, yeah. and she was his mother. Yet he first wrapped up his hands completely and then took her over the river, held her. Of course, the, the woman was very much uh, perplexed by this and asked him, but why would you do such a thing? And he said, well, after all, you are a woman. So uh, yeah. this is the kind of uh, the world in which these new concepts were forged. They used some of the existing, some of the old materials, the equation between the body and a grave for mm -hmm. the soul mm -hmm. goes back at least as far as Plato. So it, it's, uh, it comes from classical times. But they developed and they hardened in late antiquity into ways of seeing the world and of inscribing the human body, uh, which are still very influential today. Definitely. I have to ask this before um, we stop for the break. What about prostitutes? It depends on what kind of prostitutes and where, okay, in fair what right. context. <laughs> fair enough. Let's start with the um, example I'm familiar with most in my research, brothels. In, in the Middle Ages, larger cities had, you know, municipally sponsored yes. um, locations. Is this something that also happened, was the case in um, classical and late antique period? Yes, for late antiquity, we know uh, that they existed. Um, we have glimpses into the real situation. Right. One of the most fascinating concerns the city of Rome, where we know that female brothels existed, but also male brothels existed. Oh, okay. And not only did they exist, but the emperors received a special tax from all people who engaged in trade, and mm. this included those who made a profit from their own bodies, as I late see. antique legislators uh, formulated. I see. And this tax, uh, the Crusarguron, was collected until the times of Emperor Anastasius, so uh, at the very beginning of the, uh, of the 6th uh, right. century, mm -hmm. when it was abolished. Uh, a great ideological propaganda was set in motion to show how uh, what a revolutionary step this was, partly because it prohibited the tax that came from such impure trades as prostitution. Mm -hmm. But ever since Constantine, the first one, uh, the first emperor to convert to Christianity, um, it appears that no Christian emperor had too many ideological scruples in uh, <laughs> in accepting the money. As another Roman emperor had once told after he invented public toilets, pecunia non olet, so money does not stink. How little things change. Um, yes. <laughs> unfortunately, we're going to have to take a very short break right now, but we'll be back momentarily. Welcome back. Uh, this is Christopher Melke here with Past Perfect. We're joined by um, Dr. Christian Gaspar. Thank you for uh, coming here. It's great being here. 
God, good. Well, we're going to go from sex to saints now. Um, <laughs> I got to I got to listen to a lecture that you um, made earlier this week on um, a recent translation that you did of um, one of the versions of the Vita of Saint Adalbert of Prague. Um, so it's a very very hot new publication right now. Would you um, mind telling us a little bit? Uh, who is Saint Adalbert? Saint Adalbert is a monumental failure in terms of <laughs> a bishop. Uh, uh-huh. He was appointed Bishop of Prague in uh, 983 and uh, abandoned both his Episcopal see and his flock, the one which had been entrusted to him, twice in his career in order to take a monastic vacation in Rome. He went and lived in the monastery of Saints Alexius and Boniface mm-hmm. on the Aventine Hill in Rome, which makes him a fascinating figure because his first hagiographer the author of the first Latin Vita, which I translated recently into English, a man named uh, Johannes Canaparius, who was the abbot of the monastery where Adalbert stayed in Rome, tried his best to turn this episcopal failure and dereliction of episcopal duty into a perfect monastic career, Mm -hmm. which then entitled his hero to becoming a saint. He tried to turn him uh, into, uh, into a saint. The translation you mentioned is the first ever English translation of this text, Uh which was written at the end of the 10th century in Rome. Um, It appeared, um, together with a very rich annotation, in a series of texts that we publish at the department Mm -hmm. called Central European Medieval Texts. Uh, This is a bilingual series which publishes Latin sources produced in the space that we nowadays refer to as Central Europe, um, that is on the territory of medieval Poland, medieval Hungary, Bohemia, Croatia, with uh, facing English translations and copious annotations and introductions, which are meant to convey to Western scholars who are not always familiar with scholarship published in regional languages, that is in Hungarian, Polish, mm, Czech or Croatian, to synthesize for them the recent developments, scholarly developments concerning these texts, so that uh, whenever they are interested uh, in such material, they should be up to date in uh, in what is new um, about these texts. Uh, My Adalbert, I think after spending 10 years with him, uh, working on his first Vita, I feel entitled to call him mine. Um, My Adalbert came out in the sixth volume published in this series, Mm -hmm. which is the first of the two that will be dedicated to Central European hagiography, Mm -hmm. that is, to hagiographic texts which were created and circulated in this area. Um, The first volume contains Lives of Saints that belong to the so-called Christianization period, that is the 10th and the 11th centuries. And the second volume, which hopefully will come out at the beginning of next year, that would be the seventh volume of the series, Mm -hmm. will go as far as the 13th uh, century, uh, when the Christian establishment had already taken some roots in the area. Very cool. I mean, you you mentioned this... um the series of translations, and I think it's it's one of the real strengths of the department because part of the frustrations that I've had, um, you know, as uh, as an American medievalist, is the fact that um, the Iron Curtain has fallen, but a lot of research 
you know, perf- like really there's only a few areas that have really opened up in the past um, 20 years. There's quite a few medieval Russian um, historians in North America right now, but um, only a handful uh, doing Poland or the Balkans. Um, so I think that having these primary sources on hand, like the life of St. Adalbert, is um, tricky. So um, you mentioned that you translated one version. Yes. How many versions do we have out there? Well, according to the version of uh, scholarship which I follow on this issue, okay, uh, the original, which was produced at the end of the 10th century, was lost. What we have today are three different reworkings of that lost original mm-hmm. made at three different times, but within 100 years of the production of the original, let's put it like this, in three different environments and reflecting three very different agendas. Uh, the one I translated for this volume uh, is the so-called Ottonian or imperial redaction of the life of Adalbert, mm-hmm. which was probably commissioned by Emperor Otto III or by someone in his entourage and reflects very much the views of the imperial court or of someone who was familiar with such views and did their best to flatter the ruling emperor. Mm -hmm. Almost every single mention of his name in the Vita is accompanied by lavish praise. This was then edited out of the other two versions, which were produced after his death, when flattering Otto III was no longer something on which people could gain any points. Right, right. Uh, This is the version which um, was published in this volume. I am also planning to translate the other two versions. They were produced and circulated mainly in Italy, partly because of a spectacular discovery which uh, a few years ago uh, led to the re-emergence or the recovery of what is now the oldest preserved manuscript of one of the versions of the life produced in Rome. Uh, The one which was included in the collection of Lives of Saints that was used for liturgical purposes at the Roman monastery of uh, Santa Cecilia in Transtevere, uh, that is the legendarium of that monastery, a manuscript that can be securely dated to 1060-1070 and which had been lost since the beginning of the 16th century when three copies of it were made, but resurfaced a couple of years ago in South Africa in Cape Town, in the manuscript collection of the local branch of the National Library of South Africa. No kidding. It got there as part of a private collection of a very enterprising Victorian uh, Uh gentleman Uh who was at some point um, governor of South Africa and who had been gathering all kinds of interesting manuscripts. I bet. (laughs) Uh, So uh, I'm planning to translate the Italian versions as well, as well as the later hagiographic material on St. Adalbert. Um, These will be accompanied, hopefully, Mm. by a monograph on the hagiography of St. Adalbert, which I hope to publish in the coming years. Well, I just think it's funny that, you know, for even a a figure as well-known as a local saint, that there are all these different translations with all these different purposes um, out there. But I guess, you know, part of dealing with the the primary source material in the Middle Ages is that, you know, you always have to be aware not only of who the audience was, but also who the author was and why they were um, doing what they were doing. So... um, I also have to ask, um, why is Adalbert a saint? 
Mm, the short answer would be because he died a martyr's death. Uh, he tried to spread the Christian faith among the Prussians, mm -hmm. who were still pagan at the time. And they were not very much impressed by his arguments. Uh, and as a result, on the 23rd of April, 997, uh, he had his head chopped off and he was pierced several times by a lance. The longer version of the answer mm -hmm. would include the active interest of the Polish Duke uh, Boleslav Chrobry, mm -hmm. who was in search for a patron saint for his emerging state. Right. Uh -huh. And having Adalbert killed very close to the territories under his control gave him a unique opportunity to send messengers and buy back the relics, which were then located in Gniezno, in the center of his dukedom, mm -hmm. uh, in a cathedral and in a chapel built especially for the purpose. The story continues with the dissatisfaction of the Bohemians back in Prague mm -hmm. who had chased away Adalbert, but who were aware of the way his cult spread uh, and who took back the relics in 1039 mm -hmm. uh, after um, a Bohemian army led by um, Duke Przetyslav uh, sacked Gniezno and that part of Poland. And the third important person in this story is, of course, um, Otto III, who went on pilgrimage to Gniezno uh -huh. three years after Adalbert's death, partly because he wanted to recover parts of the relics which he then distributed among several foundations in the territories under his control. One of the earliest uh, was in Rome on the Tiberin Island mm, in a church now known as the Church of uh, San Bartolomeo all'Isola. And this kind of patronage, imperial patronage, made Adalbert's cult a very sexy and fast-spreading yeah. uh, saint's cult. Mm -hmm. But as all things which are linked to prominent people in a position of power, it decayed as soon as the imperial patron disappeared after the death of Otto III in 1002. Right. For a while, uh, it still showed some signs of vitality. But by the end of the 11th century, I would say um, there was very little in terms of the cult of Adalbert, at least in Western Europe. It achieved um, an amazing uh, flourishing in Central, Central Eastern Europe, mm -hmm. uh, basically. And to this day, Adalbert is one of the most venerated saints in the area. He's the patron saint of the Czech Republic mm -hmm. and of Poland. He's also, uh, he has a long tradition of being worshipped in Hungary. So uh, he was uh, in 1997, when 1,000 years since his martyrdom were celebrated, he was uh, named as the patron saint of uh, the Visegrad countries, <laughs> and he was promoted by various people as a possible patron saint of various uh, mechanisms of European integration. <laughs> so he was a very trendy saint. Then, as he had been at the end of the 10th century, at the beginning of the 11th century. How very funny. Well, I guess the thing that always impresses me, one, doing the show, and two, talking about the Middle Ages in public discourse is that it's stuff that people still find important today that I think just really amazes me.
This is even more amazing if you come to think that we are talking about a bishop who twice abandoned his yes. job <laughs> to the deep displeasure, I have to say this, of his superiors at the time. Mm -hmm. The Archbishop of Mainz, uh, is, who was his boss mm -hmm. and who twice convinced two different popes to hold special synods in Rome where Adalbert was ordered to go back to Prague. Uh, so this spectacular failure of a bishop still managed to become a pretty popular saint, yes. I would say. Had, had almost more success in death than he did in absolutely, life. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, we'll be back momentarily. Welcome back. Uh, this is Christopher Melke, joined uh, today by um, Dr. Christian Gashbar. Um, so we've had a very wide uh, range of topics that we've talked about today from late antique to sex to St. Adalbert. So um, since you said you spent the past 10 years working on this translation of his Vita, so um, I have to ask um, in terms of your own uh, research interests, what do you plan on uh, pursuing next, if you don't mind me asking? I certainly don't mind. Uh, <laughs> the I think the, if I can say so, the wide spectrum of discussions tonight reflects very much the way... Um, the Department of Medieval Studies works. It is a space where I felt encouraged and where I found the means and the colleagues disposed to share their knowledge with me to cover many of these areas. Mm -hmm. And what is most important, the freedom to move between these areas at the same time uh, while teaching Latin on various levels and all that. As for the future, I think for at least a couple of years, I will continue my matrimony with uh, Adalbert of Prague. <laughs> um, but at the same time, I am investigating other topics. Uh, one of the directions into which I will move is uh, bilingualism and um, its facets, various facets in late antiquity and the early Middle Ages as well as the phenomenon of translation of hagiographic literature and other types of texts from Greek into Latin, the linguistic translation, that is the transposition from one language to the other, but also the type of cultural translation that accompanied it when texts which had been produced in the context of the Eastern Roman Empire moved into a completely different environment at different times in into what we referred uh, to as the Western Middle Ages. Mm. And so of course, I plan to come back and uh, to sex and teach some more awesome. on that in the coming years. <laughs> <laughs> very, very exciting stuff. And um, unfortunately, on, on that note, we will have to end uh, today's broadcast. But uh, Dr. Gashpar, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. It's really been an absolute pleasure having you here. The pleasure was all mine, and I'm glad that I, uh, I'm glad and grateful at the same time that I was given the opportunity to share these thoughts with, uh, with the audience of our, uh, of our uh, medieval radio. <laughs> Thank you for the invitation. Not a problem at all. And for the listeners at home, um, be sure to tune in on our website at www.medievalstudies.ceu.hu slash radio. Uh, please be sure to send us an email at medievalradio at ceu.hu and uh, like us on Facebook as well. Um, thank you so much for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>